Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Chris Jones, the two-time National Magazine Award-winning writer who writes about soccer for ESPN. We've had some great guests lately, including Sarah Spain, Jason Kreiss, and Ian Joy. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. We'll have Chris Jones on soon here, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham, the radio voice of Inter Miami and a co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing all right, sir. How are you? Doing all right. We've had a, a pretty good weekend of soccer here, maybe better than expected even. Um, and a, f- a few things to talk about uh, before we get to my interview with Chris Jones. But I, I do want to lead with U.S. men's Olympic qualifying. Um, we're recording this on Sunday at about 5.20 p.m. Eastern. So this is before the U.S. takes on the Dominican Republic. I'm going to like take a risk here and assume that the U.S. is going to get three points out of this game. If that does not happen, we'll get back together later and re-record after the game. But assuming the U.S. is on six points after two games... um. Regardless of how they played against Costa Rica, that was a big game to get three points. Without question. And I, I do think the how is somewhat important. And uh, in an episode in which we were later talking about uh, reform in terms of how this, how schedules are done and how competitions are formatted. We'll get to that in a second. Um, I, I do think you see the very obvious disadvantage sometimes that the MLS calendar has on, on Americans in international competition, whether it is at international level or at domestic level when it comes to uh, CONCACAF Champions League. You're playing Costa Rican team that's in full swing in their season. They've got a couple of MLS players I think were influential in the day, but they just had more in their legs. And so the United States in the final half hour were suffering in altitude, in heat in Mexico. And I think you just saw a team that wasn't really that sharp. You saw Mauricio Pineda probably should have given the ball away on a couple of occasions. And David Ochoa, tremendous uh, goalkeeping from him. And it was kind of like a classic American goalkeeper performance. And I actually think goalkeepers something of an area that we don't really talk about enough with the U.S. Obviously, Zach Steffen will probably have it covered for a while, but that kind of generation of goalkeepers were like you had Howard, Guzan, Friedel, Casey Keller all kind of coming through in a five or six year period. You just don't see that pipeline of American goalkeepers, but Ochoa was brilliant. But yeah, I mean, obviously the goal is to get to the Olympics and you're most of the way there after beating Costa Rica. Yeah, and this is a history. We've talked about it before. We had Jason Kreiss on last week. U.S. hasn't qualified for the Olympics since 2008. And and this would be important, I think, for the program uh, overall to get back in there, uh, get the experience of playing in the Olympic tournament, and who knows, maybe make a, a run in that Olympic tournament. You know, Mexico won the gold medal back in 2012, so it's something that's certainly doable you know, on the way in the rest of this tournament, everything's riding uh, qualification-wise on the semifinals. So um, if the U.S. does have six points, they'll be in a pretty good position to advance to the semifinal. Then they have to win the semifinal. It's it's winner-take-all in that regard. So um, we'll see how things shake out. I do find it amusing how often, like, 
somebody like Ochoa wasn't even expected to start and mm-hmm. then becomes the star of the game. Like yeah. Korsenkowski was the guy who people were expecting to start. Uh, and so I, I think stories like that are pretty cool too. And I do think Jesus Ferreira, who scored the goal for the U.S., had a bit of pressure on him because I think, uh, you know, people were asking, you know, why isn't Jeremy Abobasi on this team? Why didn't he get picked? And and if you're going to be the starting center forward, score goals. You know, that's the way to answer that type of yep. stuff. And and Ferreira, I, I do think, you know, we've seen him do some good things for the senior national team as well. We'll see if he keeps that up uh, in this tournament here. But Good start to the tournament for the U.S. Would have been a real downer if they uh, had not gotten three points in that game against Costa Rica and would have made things pretty dicey the rest of the way. Um, Let's talk about the senior team uh, for the U.S. uh, Playing Jamaica this Thursday. Uh, Northern Ireland coming after that. Roster released. It's a, a FIFA window, so this is... The A squad, basically, even though, uh, you know, mitigating factors, keeping uh, some of the stars from coming in. So uh, Weston McKinney not coming in uh, has a knock, they said, though I saw him playing today for Juventus. He did. Um, In a bad loss to Benevento, by the way. Um, And then um, Tyler Adams, uh, Tim Weah, also announced not coming in due to COVID restrictions and it certain European countries right now are, are struggling quite a bit with, with COVID. And, and so all of these protections and restrictions in place, maybe it's just lucky they're even having games at all. Um, but you know, it's been a while since the, the national team has been together. Uh, what are you most excited about? Well, I, I'm just excited to see this group again. I mean, we've seen them kind of, play pretty well against Wales and then even better against Panama and the two friendlies we last saw them. But just again, building on the enthusiasm that we've seen. You're also building on the enthusiasm of getting Yunus Musa to commit to the program. So seeing him again in the midfield, it's not like, well, I hope that we can keep this player and then I'm really enjoying one. It's like, no, this player is ours and we'll see how he's deployed in Greg Berhalter's system. For me, I think the the player that I'm most interested in watching, if he can give it a go, at least in the first game, because he would not be able to travel to the UK, is Gio Reyna. Um, because coming off an injury has been a bit of a struggle for him at Dortmund after a really hot start. And so just his continued fitting in the picture of the national team without an obvious number 10 role in the system, which is where I think he'll he'll play. His development as a player, um, I, I've seen some criticisms of him potentially not being a good enough distributor in attacking moments, being a bit too stuck on the ball uh, with... The U.S. is compared to when you're feeding Erling Haaland. You give you give that guy the ball. Are, are you playing similarly when you're playing with the U.S. men's national team? How does he fit with Pulisic in an attacking system? So I definitely say Reyna fitting in and kind of what his role in the team would be the thing I'm most interested in watching. You know, I'd like to see Christian Pulisic play well. You know, yeah. he hasn't played much for the U.S. national team in a, in a really long time. And so to see him... You know, he had a good game for Chelsea on the weekend in the FA Cup uh, quarterfinal that they won. And, you know, try to build on some of that. You know, I know it's been a rough stretch for playing time for Pulisic with Chelsea lately. But, um, you know, I think he can use the U.S. national team and just being around the guys again. Like, I, I know how much these guys enjoy each other just as as friends. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. And yeah, uh, I, I my sense is that 
you know, because they haven't been together in a while in person, they're probably pretty excited about this. And that's a good sign for the future of this team that the chemistry is there off the field. Now they need to start working on that chemistry together on the field. And, and this gives them an opportunity to do that. Uh, we may still have more changes in the coming days in terms of uh, roster uh, changes, but you know, that's the thing I'm looking forward to most is just seeing these guys get time together to play together, to, to start building what they're going to need for later this year. Because after these games, it's all competitive games. There's no more friendlies, uh, anymore. Yeah. Well, I Massively guess there's one important ones the, too. Yeah. Yeah. There, I guess there's one before the nation's league, but, um, against Switzerland, which should be a pretty good opponent, but, you know, it's Nations League Final Four coming in early June. The A-team's going to be together for that one. Uh, I am not expecting the full A-team for a Gold Cup, which is fine. Uh, and then, who knows? Maybe we'll have some of these guys going to the Olympic tournament in August. And then in September, the 14-game World Cup qualifying campaign over just five windows begins. And that's just going to be a rush uh, and, and totally chaotic and obviously with the best players available. So this is a building block for that, but those games aren't far away. And you want to start building up the pool, right? You want to start building up depth for all these competitions to maybe taking players to the Olympics, as you said, and all these qualifying tournaments, because I imagine when you're playing three matches in a round in all kinds of climates and, and, you know, traveling long distances, you're not really going to see a first choice U.S. men's national team 11. So the full pool is really important. So seeing the domestics in December and January camp is important. And then uh, seeing the guys uh, in Europe is really important. And also, I mean, last window, we were introduced to a player like Nicholas Giacchini, for instance, who I'll be honest, I didn't know a ton about until he played. And then he scores in that game. And, you know, now you're following Nicholas Giacchini at, at Cayenne in France. Um, the, the the one that I think is pretty interesting, I think it's Jordan Sabachu who's playing at, at, yeah. at, at BSC Young Boys in Switzerland. So that's another one who uh, will get a call up as result of all the COVID situations. Uh, so maybe he's someone that can emerge. I think one player will probably emerge that we're not thinking a ton of right now just because of the nature of you know COVID and the players that will and won't be playing. I really want to see Daryl DK with a, with a, with a yeah. full national team playing in Europe. He'll probably play the game in Northern Ireland because he won't uh, have to miss it. Josh Sargent will probably play the first one. Sargent, another one who's on form. Uh, if we're talking about kind of position battles, uh, the one that I'm really interested in is right back and how ultimately Greg Berhalter deploys Sergio Dest. We're recording right. on a day in which Sergio just scored two goals for Barcelona as and a counting. right wing back. <laughs> right, so two goals and counting in a four. At time of recording, it's four nil Barcelona at Real Sociedad. So um, I want to see Sergio Desta right back. Full stop. Like for okay. me, he is the U.S. Men's National Team's right back. If you're Barcelona's right back or right wing back or whatever. You don't get to the national team and get moved to a different position to accommodate a guy who's playing in Portugal. I'm sorry. You just don't. Like, Sergio Dest should be the U.S. men's national team's right back, the end. And if it's Anthony Robinson or Sam Vines or whoever you want to bring back Eric Lehigh for all I care. Like, it, it, Sergio Dest is the U.S. men's national team's right back. Anyone can play left back, a former U.S. coach once said. So I, I'm with you there. I'd like to see Dest at right back. I know he can play left back. He's done it for the U.S., but... He is a right back. I like him as a bit more advanced wing back that we've been seeing recently for Barcelona. It's just so freaking cool to, to see him scoring goals from Lionel Messi passes. And, and you know, I, I think Barcelona people, fans I know, are, are feeling a little more optimistic these days. I know they went out in Champions League, but they felt like they went out 
at least with their head up uh, against PSG. Uh, elections have happened, and they're really seem you know they're they're in the race in La Liga. They're still alive in the Copa del Rey. They came back against Sevilla. And you're starting to see reports that Messi may be staying, which um, we'll have to wait and see how that shakes out. But uh, it sounds like things are a bit more positive in the chaotic environment that is FC Barcelona. But pretty cool to see Serginho Des doing what he's doing there. Um, I want to move on to one more thing here, and that is the question that I tweeted about over the weekend and became a bigger deal than I wanted it to because it's not that big of a deal. But <laughs> should the Champions League to some extent seed the quarterfinals? And I only say that I ask that question because um, for me, Bayern Munich and Manchester City have been the two best teams in Europe this season so far. And I am kind of bummed out as a soccer person, as a soccer fan who like, I like to see the two best teams in the final. I like to get excited for the final. For me, the final is the final. It should be the pinnacle of a tournament. And because it's a totally open draw for the quarterfinals, uh, Bayern and city cannot meet in the final. Um, And they can only meet, they may or may not, in the semifinals over two legs. And I get people saying, oh, I get to see him over two legs. I'd rather do that than see him in a one-leg final. Um, My only question is this, is I think there is a potentially legit way, from my perspective, to have like, if you're going to have two seeded teams, put one on each side of the bracket, and then do the draw from there. And I'd be okay with that. And that doesn't make me hate the little guy. I love to see little guys <laughs> win tournaments like Porto did in 2004. Uh, Porto could win the tournament this year, and I'd be ecstatic about that storyline. Um, but for the same reason that we see tennis tournaments, so that you have uh, potentially you know the best players not meeting until the final... I don't know. I, my, my personal thing is I actually would just throw a bone to the two teams that have the most points from the group stage, put them on opposite sides of the bracket, do the draw from there. And this year, the two teams that had the most points in the group stage, Bayern Munich and Manchester City. Last year, Bayern Munich and PSG, which happened to meet in the final. So um, <laughs> that's my proposal I got just fried by uh, a certain group of people on <laughs> on Twitter for this, for having some like for disrespecting the game and what makes the sport great. And guys, we all love Champions League. I love Champions League. I can't wait to watch it. But just throwing out a proposal there, an idea. Well, I I don't I do think that like you have to basically think of. What is the best version of the competition, almost regardless of the circumstances? So you're basically saying 
based off this year's competition, there are clearly two best teams, and I would agree with you, but that's not always necessarily the case. And right. so I do think you have to create what is what you believe to be the best version of the competition. I, I think part of the sensitivity is that, you know, there's four more teams that might be added. They moved to the Swiss model, and there's this kind of this fear of a European Super League, and already the biggest clubs get so much of an advantage that you're basically offering even more of an advantage for the piles of money uh, that they have in their coffers. So I, I get that sensitivity. But for me... It's about creating the best version of the competition. They already seed the Champions League in two stages of the competition. Right. In the group stage, there are pots, right? So, you know, all the all the champions of the major leagues and the winner of last year's competition and two other teams get thrown into pot one, right? And then, you, and then so on and so forth. There are still some really good groups that come as a result because there's a lot of strong teams in Europe, but ultimately the group stage is seeded, right? It is not a fully random draw. Otherwise, you just pick names out of a hat, just as the World Cup is. And then the round of 16 is seeded based off of the winners of the group taking on a second place finisher from another group, right? And so... It already is somewhat formatted. I mean, it, it, the group stage is formatted for television so that teams from the same country can't be in the same group and, and are on different match days so that, you know, it's not like teams in England competing with teams in England for, for television viewership. So, I mean, there's already so many ways that this competition is not just a purely random draw. But it's also, do you believe that a purely random draw is the best way to format a competition? I don't. Like, I would love, for instance, if, you know, maybe I'll get a bunch of hell for this too from your European <laughs> followers i think the carabao cup should be seated right you should get a number based off your league finish the year before so if you finished uh, top of the championship your number is 21 right and if you're relegated from the premier league your number is 20 right and you go all the way down to whoever finished bottom of league two they get the number was it 92 or i think it's 92 um so every team gets a number and in every round you get paired against your corresponding team in the competition I think that'd be a more fun way to do the Carabao Cup. Give it an, another wrinkle that it doesn't have, as opposed to just these random draws, right? Because in some ways, if you're saying purity of competition, a team can get to the Carabao Cup final by never playing anyone good if they get lucky in the draw, right? I mean, that happens all the time. So I don't think that's a great way to format a competition. But ultimately, we're just debating what the best way to format a competition is. But the idea that you're kind of soiling the essence <laughs> of the game by suggesting that Bayern and Man City should be an opposite side of the brackets is kind of... <laughs> obsessively puritanical in my view I got an idea for the Carabao Cup end it don't have it <laughs> is that bad? I, I, I think actually some some uh, some purists might agree with you on that <laughs> But yeah, you, you sound more radical than I do. I am. Like I, I, I don't even. I don't want to see the eight quarterfinalists in Champions League. I just want to see have the chance to see the two best teams in the final. Realizing that this is an extreme year in the sense mm -hmm. that I think we pretty clearly have two teams that that sort of have stood out and and watch them get beat. You know, Pep's gotten beaten every year before mm -hmm. the final for the last what ten years now. Um, and so that could certainly happen again. Like, I certainly don't want to, like, say these two teams are in the final. I want to have the competition. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. I, I also think if you're UEFA, and this is where people are going to get annoyed again because I'm looking at it from a business perspective. If you're UEFA and you have a final, it is your marquee event. You are making billions of dollars off of this event and if the best teams like for most people don't make the final or very rarely ever meet in the final then that's not a great thing for your product 
So mm-hmm. I guess that oh. makes me horrible the, the, if I the, if I the say word, product. The word and, product, I already hear eyes rolling all over the yeah. globe. No, but uh, ultimately, like, I guess my question to you would be, like, what is the best version of the Champions League? If I said you get a blank slate, create the Champions League, what would you do? Like, for me... I would actually get rid of the round of 16. I would only have group winners advance to a quarterfinal. You have a random draw, and like, and you'd have some real tension in the group stage because I don't think there's enough group t- tension in the group stage, right? I always think that competitions are best served by scarcity, right? There's less of it, which means that more of it means more. Um, but that, that's that's my idea. But I mean, like, I think if you asked every one of these people who are tweeting back at you. Is the Champions League right now formatted in the best way possible? They'd probably say no, and they and you'd probably come up with a different solution from everyone. And so, like again, these are just varying philosophies on how to structure the game. And I also kind of think it's funny that some European, oh, Americans, telling us how to you know do our game. <laughs> we we would never, we'd never deign to tell Americans how to do soccer in their countries. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure if Europeans showed up here and saw that in college they count the clock down from 45 to 0 instead of the other way around that they'd love that oh they would never tell us to change a thing about how we're doing things please (laughs) other thing I would say is a buddy of mine in London thought that what I was proposing was not that big of a deal but that it in the context of the changes that we know Mm -hmm. are coming in Champions League which you mentioned earlier that the timing and the context might have struck a nerve with with some folks. Well, and, and, and ultimately, what's behind those changes? What's behind those changes is the big clubs grabbing at more power and money, and you're basically affording the two best teams, who, in, in your mind, who are presumably big clubs who have a lot of money, even more of an advantage in this competition that is already skewed in their favor, and they want to make it even more skewed in their favor. The last point I have here is, I was thinking about this, about what the final of a tournament means to people in soccer and does it mean different things to people in soccer than it does in other sports because um we hear this expression a lot right like that you know finals are conservative it's very rare to see a great game an entertaining game in the final um maybe that's because you don't have the two best teams (laughs) Um, but (laughs) but leaving that aside like it's interesting like when i think back to tournaments over the years like when i think of the 86 world cup the game that stands out is the quarterfinal argentina england Mm-hmm. You know, even though the final is actually pretty good, three-two final. I uh, I, I think of Germany seven, Brazil one before I think of the World Cup final, uh, Germany one, Argentina nil. Like for me, that like 2014 was way more memorable in the semifinal stage. Right, and and I think maybe in soccer people are just more okay with the final not being the pinnacle. Yeah, I also think that's like a very it's a perspective of a mature soccer market, right? I think we we think of it in terms of like we still need this sport to grow here. And so the more of an attractive matchup that you like the final is is like kind of one where I remember like when I was working in sports radio, like just general talk sports radio, 
I would get like a call every Champions League final. Hey, can you come on and talk about this game and tell me what it means? Like it, it does have some appeal that's bigger than just this this sport or like you know the, uh, amongst diehard fans. I, I've gotten together for you know uh, for friend watch parties with people who don't really like soccer that much for the Champions League final. Like finals are an occasion, right? The the culmination of a tournament, and so it should be the grandest occasion possible in our view. But for someone else who like if Porto and Borussia Dortmund got together in the final, there are people who wouldn't care. Like, they're watching it anyway, so they're not thinking about it in terms of this thing growing. I think the Women's World Cup's another good example, right, in 2019, where US, France-USA in the quarterfinals was probably the, the biggest single event mm-hmm. of that tournament. Mm-hmm. And as, as they, is it another phrase you hear in soccer of like, a game that could or should have been a final. Right. You know? Well, then like, why isn't the final? Yeah. Like, come on, let's but just the do draw, this. The, the rest of that is, but the draw didn't allow it to happen. Right. Right. And, and it's funny because, like, the size of the games for the women in that tournament actually de-escalated from France at the top, England in the middle in the semifinal, which is another great game that could have been a final. And then the Netherlands is probably the worst of those three in terms of, like, by the time you get to the Netherlands in the final, you're thinking... Well, the U.S. got this in the back. They're not going to lose to the Netherlands. Whereas there's some doubt playing England, and there was definitely doubt playing France in their home country. So, uh, yeah, that was not the best way to structure that competition, and the draw determined it. Yeah, we'll just fix soccer one of these podcasts. How about that? <laughs> That'll be the title of that episode. People will, people will love that. <laughs> well, as always, good to talk to you over about the soccer weekend, my friend. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Chris Jones. Our guest now is a guy who has done tremendous writing on soccer and a lot of other topics. Chris Jones is a two-time National Magazine Award winner for feature writing. He has written extensively for Esquire and ESPN, among other places. His 2014 Esquire story, Away, was the basis for the Netflix series of the same name, starring Hilary Swank, for which Chris wrote one of the episodes. He's on Twitter at Enswell Jones, where his Friday Twitter thread stories have regularly gone viral. And he joins me today from his home in Port Hope, Ontario. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Grant, nice to see you, buddy. Great to see you too, my friend. 
Um, and there's lots to talk about here. And I definitely want to talk about non-soccer things because you do so <laughs> many non-soccer things. But let's start with the soccer because in addition to writing about soccer, you play soccer, you coach soccer. Could you explain sort of your connection to and love for the sport? Of course. Um, I've played soccer since I was four. Uh, I became a goalkeeper when I was four because I liked being different from everybody else. I liked wearing the yellow shirt and stayed a goalkeeper. Uh, unfortunately, I maxed out at 5'10", and <laughs> therefore my international career has been limited. Um, but I, yeah, played my whole life. I started coaching my son maybe seven years ago, um, working on my licenses, have big dreams of getting the CONCACAF equivalent of the UEFA B eventually. That's my figure where I'll top out and write about it. And my connection to soccer is actually through my mom. Uh, my dad is Welsh. Rugby is his game. It's one of his great lifelong regrets that I just never took to rugby. And football is my mom's game. And she's from a little town called Rottenstall near Manchester. And she was a Burnley supporter. She would go with her dad. Um, and my first game in the flesh was a Burnley match when I was a wee boy. And they were in the fourth, what was then the fourth division. Oh, wow. That was, that was my introduction and i've been a burnley fan since which has been you know <laughs> fine they're in the they're in the top flight now regularly. well so it was funny grant so back when i went to that first game there was an old guy talking to me in the parking lot. i got a scarf i got my burnley scarf and he said you know you're gonna see them in the first and i was like i think you're nuts because <laughs> right now they're nowhere near it um and it took about 40 years and I finally got to see it. And and Burnley are always going to be one of those teams that's sort of in between. Mm -hmm. Like really, either really good in the championship or marginal in the Premier League. Uh, finished seventh a couple of years ago, which is probably the high watermark. Um, and this year, of course, just constant anxiety. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so my football comes from my mom. I think that's really cool about your mom for a couple of reasons. One, I don't imagine there were that many women who were soccer fans when she was growing up. And also she chose a fourth division team that is most definitely not like rooting for Microsoft. Yeah, no. Well, she didn't pick it. Burnley was her dad's team. So, okay. and, she, and she was my grandfather. Um, uh, I guess if I'm speaking honestly, uh, wanted, wanted sons, ended up with two daughters. And my mom was the, the son, <laughs> you know, of the two daughters. And so she, she was his company at the games. And so they would go to Burnley games all the time. And um, it was a big part of her connection to her dad. Uh, and for me, it became a connection. You know, my grandfather died when I was quite young. Um, and for me, that sort of Burnley thing is, is, is like an inheritance. It's an heirloom. Uh, and I'm sort of glad because, I mean, the alternatives were Man United or Man City. And then I'd feel like right. <laughs> some kind of weird bandwagon guy. I mean, you've written about this too. Like your connection with your son is mm -hmm. largely, or at least a lot, through soccer, whether it's coaching him, whether it's watching, it sounds like Liverpool. Yeah, um, unfortunately. How would, you how would you describe that? A hugely important part of our relationship. Um, it's fun, you know, my, elder, my older son, Charlie, is autistic. Uh, and we discovered he was autistic when he was four 
and sign them up for soccer. So it was, it was automatic. Like my kids were going to play soccer. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had, you know, two boys um, and Charlie just, he just, there was weird things happening. He would just roll off the side of the pitch and he got obsessed. He was playing net once. He got obsessed with a string hanging down from the net. People were scoring on him because he had his back to the game. And it was just, that's when it really twigged that something was different about Charlie. Um, And then Sammy, who's my younger son, signed him up when he was four and he wept playing soccer. Like he, he, I remember his coach, had this lovely coach, this woman, Caroline, who would hold his hand on the field and run. And he was crying, 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 hated it. And I was like, how did I end up with two children who hate it? Uh, and then the next season, Sammy just twigged. Something, something happened in Sammy um, when he was five. And then luckily when he was six was the, was the year Liverpool. For some reason, Liverpool were on television all the time. And it was like Suarez, Gerard. It was like they did, you know, they were, Pretty solid team. Uh, I think we finished second, maybe. In that was the slip year, wasn't it? The slip year, yes. Uh, and and Sammy was hooked. And so watching, we watch all the time. Uh, he plays. I coach. Um, my, you know, I'm divorced, and so we we spend half the time together. And this morning, I woke up to a text because uh, Liverpool drew Real Madrid for the Champions League, and Sam's stressed. And you know that it's like one of the things we talk about all the time, and it's just a constant source of. Uh, it's a constant source of joy for me. Like I, I love and coaching him. It's not the same as playing like coaching is different, uh, but coaching him is like one of the great happinesses of my life. Like I love watching him play. You have covered a lot of major soccer tournaments over the years for ESPN, World Cups, Euros. What would you say was your best experience? And maybe if you could pick your wildest experience as well. Oh, man. I'm trying to think my best. I mean, I, it, it's, I love it. I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, it's amazing. You do a major tournament, it's just the buzz, the sound of a stadium at full throat. Oh, you know, it's been a while. It's been a little while. You know this. I'm just remembering how that feels, the goosebumps. Um, my best experience was probably watching Wales at Euro 2016. Um, God, it was so fun. Uh, so my dad, like I said, my dad's Welsh and, and internationally Wales is the team that I, you know, as a Canadian, I need something. Uh, so <laughs> Wales is the team that I tend to cheer for. Um, and that tournament was just magical. It was so yeah. fun. And my boss was very kind. He let me cover all the, all the Welsh games. Um, I got into a bit of a sticky situation. Wales played England in the group stage and I got into a semi-altercation with some purple English fans. And uh, so that was pretty, uh, it was not good. Um, but when they beat Belgium, they beat Belgium sort of unexpectedly. Yeah. I, I wept. I have not cried like that in a stadium. I wept. Like I get emotional watching Wales it's from the anthem. You know, they play Land of My Fathers. So I think of my dad and, uh, you know, it chokes me up just from the beginning. I'm, I have a lump in my throat the whole time. And then they won that game. I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried. I barely got a story out. I remember going back to my hotel and there was three guys in Welsh jerseys in the lobby. It's like two in the morning. And I walked in and they could tell. And no one said anything, just hugs. Just started hugging these total strangers in a hotel lobby in France. And it was just, wow. it was everything I love about football. It was just, just a glorious, I love that whole experience. It was amazing. Um, wildest, can I just say Brazil? <laughs> 20, 2014 
14 holy crap balls i think i have ptsd from brazil i don't know about you i did not have a great time it was it was uh exhausting and people who don't cover you know people who look at us from the outside are like you mean you got paid to go watch a world cup and you're complaining right. i'm not complaining about the world cup part but i mean i had hotel rooms that didn't have beds um, <laughs> i had bus rides that lasted 16 hours through the jungle flights to nowhere uh i remember starving i was really hungry and exhausted in my hotel somewhere i had a terrible hotel room above a kitchen all i could hear was clattering all night and I ordered what I thought was a cheeseburger and fries. And, you know, like the silver room service platter arrived with a lid. And I opened the <laughs> lid and I'd somehow ordered an entire grilled pineapple. Uh, and I just ate it. I ate it and I cried. <laughs> Eating this stupid That was a pineapple. good pineapple. Oh, my God. My mouth was on fire. <laughs> you know, like that pineapple acid. But I was so hungry. I just ate this whole pineapple. <laughs> I was like, and that Brazil was just, it was tough. I was, I mean, Rio was just mental. I almost killed Wright Thompson, your previous, one of your previous guests. I almost killed Wright Thompson in um, Rio because he insisted on going get a sandwich. He's like, it's five minutes, five minutes from our hotel. And right. I was like, there's nothing that's five minutes away in Brazil. <laughs> it's either next door or six hours away. No, it's five minutes. And two hours later, we were still in this taxi and I lost my mind. <laughs> that taxi driver still talks about the guy who just got out of his car and threatened to murder his friend and threatened to murder the taxi driver. And <laughs> the sandwich, and the sandwich, by the way, was fine. It was okay. Yeah. It was not worth almost killing people for. It's funny because I got sick <laughs> in, in Manaus. Oh, um, yeah. Which oh. is where the U.S. played Portugal in the middle of the Amazon. And... My main thing during a World Cup or a Euro, if I'm on the ground, is do not get sick, do not get sick, do not get sick. And I had just two days of hell around Manaus, like that I would never want to live through again. Oh, but uh, every story from every, I know guys who got kidnapped, I know guys who were sick, and people <laughs> talk about, but they have these like little moments. So, Manaus, I was with a friend. Um, I was with a friend in Manaus and his dad had, had just passed away and he was having some, he was struggling, you know, it just happened. And he'd got, he'd still done the world cup, hoping it would like distract him. We were in Manaus together. And Manaus has this, like, even though it's in the middle of the jungle, it had this amazing opera house. Did you go to the opera yeah, house? Yeah, I did. I took the tour and everything. Beautiful opera house in the middle of nowhere. And, um, and, and, and we walked in, uh, I had seen it and I said, Hey, you got to come see the opera house. And we walked in and they were rehearsing and we sat in a box and watched this opera, um, just the two of us. And it was super emotional, you know, with his dad and everything that was going on. And it was like this moment of, it was like this little moment of grace in the middle of all this chaos. And when you hear people talk about that tournament, I think a lot of people go, Oh my God, it was 30 days of mayhem. But I did have this one, I had this great swim or, you know, like people talk about this one thing that got them through the, the opera house of Manaus was important. Yeah, not nah, definitely. I actually went back there in 2016 because the U.S. women drew Manaus for the Olympics. I feel oh like my... a connection with that place. God, I mean, it's insane <laughs> that we all went there to watch. I went there for Italy, England. Yep. I mean, what, what are we doing? What are we doing in Manaus watching Italy? Like, I was like, what? what? Why are we all here? It was a thousand degrees. <laughs> I still remember guys coming off the field just looking like they've been swimming. Like it was just, <laughs> oh my God, it was so stupid. 
So you've written a lot of soccer stories over the years. Um, I have some of my personal favorites of yours. What's your personal favorite? My personal favorite for events, like um, that Italy-England game, I wrote a story about Pirlo. Um, he had like the world's most perfect dummy in that game. Mm-hmm. And it was it was so beautiful. And there was something about Pirlo I just loved. Like I, well, obviously. And what I liked about him especially is, you know, he was toward the end. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was like the lion in winter. And, you know, he was he was older and he looked like hell like that game it looked like it sapped the last of his soul um and i'd just been to the opera house that day Mm -hmm. and so i wrote this story about pirlo's dummy and the opera house and it probably made zero sense i'm sure my boss got it and was like what is he doing um i think i got the score in there somewhere but i like that story it was just one of those i just felt like such a connection to a guy who i'm not at all connected to um and Mm -hmm. again that's that for me is sport. Like that for me is football. It's those little moments of connection, those guys in the hotel or with my son, or I felt like for a little moment that I understood Pirlo. Um, I like the I, story when you got a medical at, uh, at a t- <laughs> <laughs> of course you like that one. Oh my God. What a humiliation. <laughs> I was hanging in there, buddy. I was hanging in there until the very end. <laughs> and then, Oh, so your listener, so yeah, I did the I did the medical at Everton that you'd give an incoming player. And at the time, <laughs> I must have been like forty three or forty four, uh, and not I, I'm going to be honest, I was not in tip top shape. I was not in the shape <laughs> of my life. Um, and I I I you know the heart thing was fine. I got the full deal: blood drawn, uh, heart, uh, MRI. Remember the MRI report was just like generally not good. <laughs> Just like everything sucks. That was the MRI report. And they were like, you know, there's nothing here that would eliminate you, but we'd be fairly concerned about the fact that, you know, you've got, you know, your goalkeeper and your hands look like they've been through a meat grinder and blah, blah, blah. Like, be a little worried. And then and then I had to do uh, what is either called a beep or bleep test, depending on, on where you're from. Sprint six minutes of running between cones. And I was, I was monitored. I had a heart monitor on. Um, and I remember the guy doing the test started getting worried out loud about my heart rate which got up to like 180 um and i i wasn't done the test like i was four minutes in and i was just dying um (laughs) and i ended up not finishing and he's he's and he's like 10 minutes later i was still at like 170 he was like actually kind of concerned I think. wow it's all, on, it's all on camera which is great you know i wasn't just writing this story it's all on video so there's me just lying on the ground <laughs> and actually one of the things he said to me I, th- I found so fascinating so he said at the end of that test a professional uh would max out around 110 and after one minute uh would lose about 50 beats would be down to 60. wow so i didn't finish the test i was at 180 and like several minutes later i was at like 160. like their recovery rate, they are so fit. Like, they are so crazy fit. I mean, that really does give you a really visceral understanding of how fit oh, soccer players are. Off the charts. Like, the fact that they max at 110 on, like, sprinting. Uh, and it's the, But it's the recovery. It's yep. just one minute and they're fine. And it's like, you see that on the pitch. Like, you see a guy run and then you have a moment where he's not doing anything. What you don't realize is after that moment of not doing anything, he's fine. It's right. like he hasn't played. You know, it's like it's it's yeah, it's off the charts. Who are the most interesting people in soccer to you these days? You know who I'm weirdly sort of obsessed with following, kind of oddly, is Steven Gerrard. Um, yeah, he's on the rise as a coach. I think I think he's going to do some amazing things. And I my my hunch is 
So a few years ago, when he came to the LA Galaxy, mm-hmm. um, I did a story on him. And it was one of the most fascinating experiences for me as, as a person who loves the game. He couldn't play right away. I can't, there was like a visa issue or some kind of like whatever. And I got to watch a game with him. We watched the Galaxy play. I think it was Toronto FC in LA. And I sat next to him and I said, can you just tell me, can you just like say your thoughts out loud? Like what you're seeing when you watch this. And I think if Jared was being honest, he had not watched a minute of MLS, I don't think. Like it just was not something he would have done. He was talking about players he had never seen. He was using their numbers. Oh, number, whatever. And he was describing their careers to a T, who they were as players. So that was the start where I was like, God, he doesn't know these guys, but he knows them. And then he was talking about the game itself. And, and, and like, you know, like I said, like I've watched and played and coached years. I feel like I know the game pretty well. And sitting next to him, I realized I don't know anything. Like he was watching it at a level. He would point something out and I would see it once he pointed it out, but Mm -hmm. I didn't see it coming. And his knowledge was so deep. It could feel like clairvoyance. Like when Tony Romo is is commentating on an NFL game and he predicts, he's like, oh, they're going to run to the right. Right. That's what Jared was doing. He was like, oh, he's going to do the, 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 and, and, and because he was saying it, it was coming out slower than he was thinking. Like his, his thoughts were faster. So just, just sitting next to someone with such a wonderful understanding of the game. And then when he got to Rangers, I thought, this is interesting because great players, it, it sometimes doesn't translate. You know, Frank great Lampard. Players, exactly. <laughs> like they're a very recent example. And sometimes it's, you know, a great player isn't a very good coach. This happened in hockey with Wayne Gretzky where he would, he would be like, why didn't you make that pass? Well, I didn't see the pass. Like you saw it, but I didn't see it. Like that, so it's that even among the athletes, there's a separation. And so I thought, well, how, how's Jared going to do it Rangers? Like, that's an interesting, and they're, you know, the Scottish league is not the premier league, but it's not nothing. And Rangers, huge club that's had like not good times. Um, and he's been brilliant. Yeah. So for, won the title crazy early. Crazy early. Like they're unbelievable. And so for me, it's like, I, I wonder, I don't, you know, there's been talk with Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp and what's going to happen there. And my gut sense is Jared's going to follow Klopp. Um, if not, like hopefully not soon. I don't think Klopp should be run out, which some people are talking about, but I think he's next in line. And watching Gerard manage Liverpool, I think will be super interesting. It would make sense to me if Klopp finishes his contract through 2024, which he says yeah. he will, that that would be a time where Gerard could say, I've put in my time in a way that not every guy does. And I'm thinking of, guys we mentioned already here, Lampard, Pirlo, <laughs> that he's ready at that time. Um, I suspect he will. And I, I, think, I think we underestimate how hard it is to be a manager, especially of a big club with expectations. Right. Like, I love Pirlo. I think Pirlo is amazing. I think he's one of the most interesting men in the world. Getting Juve to start, like, I don't, that seems crazy to me. Lampard, like, what does Lampard do now? Well, right now, Tuchel is, is, like doing amazing things with the exact same players that Lampard does. makes Lampard look terrible. It gets worse every week. It gets worse. That's literally what's happening. It's like, oh, nothing has changed except Lampard isn't doing it, and they're on an incredible roll. Like, and I'm going, well, you look awful. Like, you look incapable. So, what does he go to Macclesfield Town? Like, what's he going to do? Like, it's like where. So for me, it's like the way Jared, like Rangers, is sort of you know real club, uh, good situation. Um, 
but he's doing so well with it. I'm like, okay, there's a guy who's actually kind of like, and having had that experience in LA with him, like just the way he was analyzing that game, I was like, oh, this guy is not just a great player. This guy is smart. Gonna be um, a good coach. Yeah. Gonna be a good coach. And I think, I think, I, I can't wait to see how that all pans out. Now, I had seen a quote from you at one point of my greatest dream is to see Canada play in a World Cup. And there's a lot to be excited about right now with mm-hmm. Alfonso Davies, with Jonathan David, with other emerging Canadian players. Are you allowing yourself to think it might be possible to qualify for the 22 World Cup, Canada? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowing myself? No. Uh, oh, Canada. Canada and soccer is sort of an inexplicable. We should be much better than we are. Uh, and World Cup qualification for Canada is a long history of doing fine and then having a calamitous loss to like Trinidad and Tobago or Honduras. Um, the last time around, Honduras absolutely destroyed Canada. And it's like, that's not okay. I know you're in Honduras and it's hard. You can't, I can't remember what the score was. It was like eight one or something. It was, it was bad. It was off the charts. And I was like, well, that's not fine. That's bad. Football, soccer, whatever you want to call it, is the highest participation sport in Canada. Part of our problem for years has been, you know, a lot of the kids who play soccer are like me, where it comes from, they're immigrants and it comes from families and they have a choice. So not that this was ever a consideration for me, but I could technically play for England, Wales, or Canada. And what would happen constantly in situations like that is the player would choose not Canada. Mm-hmm. Owen Hargree is a great example of someone who had options and there was a war and didn't pick because of course not. You want to play, you want to play in big tournaments. And so now it's like, it seems okay. Like it seems like, but I, mean, I still have years and years. Canada's greatest World Cup experience. Well, there's only been one. <laughs> like people, Canada lost to France only by one nothing right. in, Mex- in Mexico. And that's our big game. When your big game is not a terrible loss, like it's hard to have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of hope. My hope is 2026. Well, you're in no matter what. <laughs> Thank you. So it takes that pressure out. We've got some home games. The other hilarious thing about Canada soccer um, you know, for a long time, Toronto was the base and Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world. And Canada would play. I remember going to see Canada, Scotland. That stadium was blue. It was really? all Scotland. And so, uh, you know, the Canadian team started Edmonton became the base. <laughs> because like no one immigrates to Edmonton. But of course, there was no one in the stadium then. So the choice was either do we have like an away game at home or do we play in front of an empty stadium? They've moved back to Toronto. Hopefully it starts to turn. 2026 is where I'm putting some hope. I think somehow we'll not screw it up and not get in as a host. And then <laughs> they're talking about what the t- groups of three, right? And it's like, you got to win your yeah, group. Yeah, it's going to be really weird. Uh, 48 teams, three teams per group. Um, but I am not going to rule out. I'm not going to rule out. You, I, Alfonso Davies is literally the best player in CONCACAF. I don't even think it's that close. Yeah, he's won. Well, Jonathan David's a good player, man. Two, but nine others. This, this is true. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's, and it, I don't know why. I don't know why it's such a struggle. I don't know. I mean, there is hope. I'm, I'm I, I will concede that there is a light right now. Um, but it's not. I mean, 
put together an 11 that'll beat who? Well, like, over the years, I always thought Canada was worse than the sum of its parts. I thought that like they actually had some good players like De Guzman and, and Dwayne D. Rosario and, and that they sort of underperformed their talent. Like maybe now they can either rate, you know, perform at talent level or even exceed, be better than the sum of your parts. It's possible. It's possible. And what I'm hoping is that more people choose Canada. What I'm yeah. hoping is like, this is the start of something where it's like, oh, now Canada becomes like, I can play there and I have a chance of being at a World Cup. Like I, and so that's what I'm hoping, like a, sh a ship turning around slowly. Like I'm hoping now is when people start going, oh, it's at least an option, a viable option to pick. Like we were importing players. Canada had a guy named Mark Bertram who had never been to Canada. Mm -hmm. He played for Millwall. His grandfather was born in Winnipeg or something. And I remember his first game for Canada. He became one of the first players ever to play internationally. He, his first game in Canada was, or for Canada was in Northern Ireland or somewhere. And he became like the first player ever to play for a team without having been to the country. <laughs> and it's like, what are we doing? You know, it's just, a, it's sort of madness. And now, I mean, now there is a little more hope. 2026 is the. Okay. But then who have we beaten? We're going to finish third in our group. We're not going to, you know. The other thing, the other thing I keep in my mind, sorry, I'm rambling. Iceland, <laughs> Iceland in 2016. Yeah. Gives you a little something. Oh, yeah. But, but they invested. 30,000 people. They invested. I read somewhere that one in every 50 people in Iceland is a UEFA B qualified coach. <laughs> it's probably true. Because like, they have a lot of registered coaches. I mean, that's nuts. And like Canada's like, you know, trying to get any, you know, it's like, what are we doing? Anyway, Sorry. there are some, Just... there are some non soccer things I want to ask you about. So okay, okay, I, I, I'll start right now. These Friday Twitter threads that you're doing have included some incredible stories from over the years uh, that have gone viral. Whether it's about tracking down Ricky Williams in Australia or what led to you at 16 on a scuba dive urinating extensively on a guy who'd gotten a jellyfish sting on his face to what you just sent out today, which is a Friday about the post-it note messages that Roger Ebert gave to you when you were interviewing him for a tremendous story you did on him for Esquire back in 09. And he wasn't buddy. able to speak. Um, what's the story of how you started doing these Friday Twitter story threads it started early in the pandemic it was um april so canada march 11th was the day that everything kind of stopped here um i remember sammy liverpool played atletico i think in champions league yeah champions league and they were winning two nothing i took sam to a game sammy had a final and i had a game that night we were watching coaching and playing that night uh sammy starts this game it's the final we won the league. We lose the final. Then I look at my phone. Liverpool has somehow lost to Athletic. It was like 3-2, I think. And then I lost my game. It was just like, it was the worst. <laughs> and then I came home and everything, it was over. And so we went into like a, a fairly hard lockdown. Unfortunately, not New Zealand hard or Australia hard, but we went into sort of a lockdown. Soccer stopped and all that kind of stuff stopped. And I was just home. And I live in a small town. And I told a story just randomly a high school, about a high school kid, Pete Simon, who I'd had a terrible cold. I'm going to high school. I was kind of a nerd um, in high school. And I, I, I had this terrible cold and I'd blown my nose and I'd blown a snot rocket onto my shirt and didn't know it. Uh, 
And there's this kid who was sort of a bully, particularly about clothes. He always made fun of people's clothes. Um, and he's like, is that a booger? Is that snot? And I was like, oh, oh. And it was in the middle of class and all these kids, you know, that hot high school, terrible. And this kid named Pete Simon, who was a buddy of mine, but not like a close friend, came up. And his first response, of course, like everybody else was like, oh, oh my God, that's disgusting. But then he kind of, he saw my face and he went, oh, did you eat a banana? You must have had a banana for breakfast. That's banana. And I was like, oh, I did. I did. I did eat a banana. And, and everyone thought I was a piece of banana. He saved my high school life. And I, he randomly popped into my head in April. And I wrote about Pete Simon um, saving my bacon in high school. And then a woman named Krista shows up in the mansions and she says, where'd you go to school? Because I'm married to a Pete Simon. And this sounds a lot like him. And I was like, there's no possible way. It was the Pete Simon. Wow. And that story went, Pete Simon and I reconnected. I hadn't talked to him in 30 years. Um, and that story went pretty viral. And I was like, oh, that's fun. And so the next week I told another one about, I think the, the second one was about being uh, Boomer, the Parks Canada Beaver. I was the mascot um, <laughs> for Parks Canada for a while and got the absolute crap kicked out of me by a bunch of first graders. Um, I told that story and it did well. And I was kind of like, oh, well, this is nice. And, and then I just made it a weekly thing to get people to stay home. Basically, it was my way of like, listen, it's Friday. This sucks. Stay home. Stay safe. We made it another week. And then I just kept it going since. It's just, uh, um, I took a little break. I want to say in the summertime, uh, I took a little break. But otherwise, I've been doing it. And it's, it's, it's been really good for me. It's like, um, it's like a, a, a connection uh, with people. Like people are, so somehow, Grant, I've lucked out in having the nicest collection of followers on the internet. Uh, and that is impressive. They're just kind. And they, they tell their own stories. And the mansions are often like far more hilarious or moving or whatever than the story itself. And, and it just, it's just been this lovely sort of, it's made me realize that sort of Twitter or wherever it is, is not inherently evil. Like it can be a rough place, but it's sort of what you make of it. Um, and those stories have just been a nice way for me to, to feel like part of something when I'm home, you know, I'm missing out on a lot of things that I would love to be doing. And, and it's just been this nice little, it's as much of a distraction for me as it is for anybody else. And it I lets mean, me like remember some nice things. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of people, Twitter is kind of a cesspool, but in, in this sort of seems like the anti cesspool to show that it's possible to do the opposite with, with Twitter. And it sounds like it, like not just the stories that you're sharing, but they're causing you to reconnect with some of the people you're telling the stories about. So you had this amazing Ricky Williams story about, He's somewhere out in the world and you somehow convince your Esquire editors to just let you try to find him. Different time. And, different and, time. And, and, and then you somehow do. <laughs> and that story is incredible. But then you reconnected with Ricky Williams after that? With Ricky, it was great. Yeah, that's one of the other nice things. Like people, there's people in your life. One of the blessings about being a journalist is you get to meet all sorts of interesting people. But one of the curses is you then have to meet the next person. You're just busy. Mm -hmm. like you're just constantly. And I, I don't, there's always a debate about whether you stay in touch with sources or whether it's weird to stay in touch with sources. And I, I always kind of did. But, you know, staying in touch with people is hard and it takes effort. And sometimes you just sort of fall away. And Ricky, Ricky is one of the most hilarious experiences in my whole life. My life has been very stupid in a lot of ways. Um, but one of them 
Ricky, yes, I lied to my boss. Ricky had disappeared. He had left the Miami Dolphins. He failed a, a drug test for the third time. He quit and he vanished. There were little reports that he was in Japan and he showed up here and he popped up here. And I convinced my boss that I would find him, which is the stupidest. <laughs> and he said, what are your chances? And I, I, li- I straight up lied. I said 50-50. And in my head, I was like, there's no chance. I mean, why am I going to find Ricky Williams? I just wanted to travel. And in my head, I was like, going to always be like one step behind. He's running back and I'd be chasing him. And I would be like, yeah, I'd be chasing Ricky. I, I'd go, oh, you know, he, oh, I just heard he was here and I'm going to go there. Oh, he's just left for here. And I, in my head, had planned on two months of travel. And I emailed, I got Ricky's email from somebody and I emailed him and I said, if I find you, will you talk to me? And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll find you. I'll talk to you. If you find me, I'll talk to you. I was like, great. Okay, now what? And there had been a rumor that he was in Australia. I had used to live in Australia. Byron Bay is just at the time pot heaven. <laughs> I was like, I'll start in Byron Bay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I flew to Byron Bay. I flew to Byron Bay. I'm like, well, now what? So I literally just started walking around going, hey, have you seen this African-American guy with dreads, you know, walking around? And, and the like second or third guy I asked, like this leathery man on the beach said, yeah, he's over there. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, there's a campground. He's in it. <laughs> and I went to the campground. And I was like, well, there's no way. So I said, hey, do you have a guy named Ricky staying here? And the woman behind the counter goes, yeah, he's in the tents. I was like, okay. So then I go over to the tents. There's like a hundred tents in the forest. I go, well, well, now what do I do? And then I heard this voice coming out of a kitchen hut saying, oh, no, thank you. No, thanks. And I peer my head around and there's Ricky Williams. It took me like 20 minutes. Wow. And I was actually, my first instinct, after I was really, I said, Ricky? And he goes, he turns around, he goes, yes. And I said, I'm Chris, I'm, I'm from Esquire. He goes, wow, you found me. I was like, yeah, yeah, I found you. And I had this sort of elation. And then I was disappointed because I was like, well, shit. Oh, sorry. I was like, oh, I want to, I want to, I was going to travel. Oh, I mean, it's great that I got you. <laughs> but it happened a little too quick. You know, it was, it was weird. So Ricky and I hung out for a week. Fabulous week highest kites most of the time uh whale watching and he was shopping for a farm we went looking for a farm we played poker all night in this pizza shop ricky destroyed us ricky took all of our money uh because ricky comes off as like this innocent but as soon as you enter any kind of competition ricky will lay you out and and um he wrecked us all at poker and then that story went viral i didn't realize ricky was on twitter ricky started trending on twitter huh that story went so viral, Ricky started trending and people started, people, I feel so bad about it. People were worried he died. Huh. Um, yeah, because that's started, what happens when people see names like that. And, and he started getting all these texts, like, are you okay? And he's like, yes, I'm fine. Like, what's going on? And then he saw the story and we reconnected. And he, you know, we've talked about Sid's and um, huh. just a lovely guy who was in my life and was like weirdly important in my life for someone I only spent a week with, but, but then just didn't, you know, he followed a touch and then, and here we are again. And it's, and it's just nice. It's just nice. And during the pandemic, I mean, you've been on the front lines with your wife, you know, doing her amazing work and, and being in New York city. And I've had it very easy, but for me, it, it's just been like these little moments of joy that are like footholds up the mountain. Do you know what I mean? That get you up. And it's, and, and Ricky, that whole experience was just, it was a lovely thing to remember. And then to reconnect with him has been, really nice too. Do you think you're going to keep doing them? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I'm coming up on the one year. I looked today because I was curious. I, I told the Pete Simon story on April the 8th. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And a little part of me is like, well, maybe, maybe I do it every Friday until then. And then I make them more like not every, because I, I, I've been doing it Friday at one o'clock. Like it's been a regular. Yeah. Um, and at some point I hope I have a life again and I might be <laughs> yeah. busy Friday at one o'clock, you know, it's like, uh, I won't predictably be home. <laughs> so, so I think what I might do at some point is just make them more like, um, I don't know what the word is sporadic or spontaneous. Um, I'll still tell them. What's funny, Grant, it's I'm, I'm now working, you know, they've gone viral enough that there is now, uh, ridiculously, there is interest uh, from Hollywood. And mm-hmm. I'm now screenwriting more than any other writing and working on a pilot for a show based on my dumb yeah. Twitter life. So we'll see. It's That's a, awesome. It is so far away from anything, but, uh, but there is a pilot script now um, about a divorced dad in a small town who has had many dumb things happen to him. I love it. And I wish you the best with it. Um, Thank you. I I was going to ask you at a certain point, like, you know, like the work you're doing these days, you're still working a fair amount, quite a bit. Um, Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I feel like people think I've disappeared. The Twitter stories don't pay. I found right. It doesn't matter. They can go pretty big. You get no money for that. It's weird. I just assumed <laughs> at some point money would start rolling in. Um, no, it's, uh, uh, I'm mostly screenwriting. And the weird thing about screenwriting, when you, when you make that transition from journalism to screenwriting, journalism, you know, I started as like a daily journalist. You get that like immediate feedback and you're very visible mm-hmm. in your little universe, you know, like, so people know you're working. Oh, I know what he was doing. He was at the Blue Jays game last night, you know. Uh, or you're covering the World Cup, like, oh, he's working. Um, when you're right for screen, first of all, no one reads the credits, so they don't know who's responsible for what. They might know, like, the big, like, that Vince Gilligan made Breaking Bad, but they have no idea who wrote the last episode of whatever. Um, and then the other thing that happens is things take forever to make. Mm-hmm. So I've been working hard. Uh, you know, I wrote a feature script. Um, I'm working on another feature script working on a couple of TV scripts. Um, I've been busy, but it'll be a while before they surface, if they surface at all. I mean, that's the other thing that happens with Hollywood all the time. It's like, there's huge amounts of labor that then just get set on fire um, and you get paid. There's lots of screenwriters who have like made really good livings and have never had anything produced. It's such a weird business. Um, I'm still getting used to that idea. Uh, You know, journalism is like, you don't really have to agree on anything. Oh, you're going to go write this story. Yeah, I'm going to go write this story. And then it's going to appear like we don't have to discuss any of this. Like it's going to happen. And in screenwriting, it's like it may happen and it may not. In fact, it's probably not. And that's like a tough, it's a tough sort of uh, mindset, mind, mind space to get into. But yeah, so I'm mostly screenwriting. I also have a book coming out in January that I will take all sorts of heat for called The Eye Test, um, which is uh the case for human creativity, like in the age of analytics. It's not an anti-analytics book. It is a book that says, maybe we should think a little more about not destroying humans every time we do something. Okay. Wow, you've been doing a lot then. Um, I've been busy. It's <laughs> like the busiest year of my life. You know, like, oh my God, you just tell these Twitter stories. No, no, actually, I've been working really hard. I am in my pajamas, but I'm working hard. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm working writer hard. I can't say yeah. yeah. It's not like we're shoveling coal here. Um, there's there's no shoveling. But well, uh, there's a metaphorical fantastic. shovel. I, I, I have a question for you. And partly this is because I have my own very personal interest. 
Is it a big adjustment to go from like writing magazine stories and books to screenwriting? It is and it isn't. Um, I'm working with a producer who's a lovely guy. I really like him. Um, And I I delivered this pilot script uh, last week and I worked on it. I worked hard on it, Um, but it felt good. And you know that, you know, one of the things about being a writer, once you do it enough, you know, and you kind of have something. And you know when you didn't hit it, you yeah. sort of hope people don't notice. You're like, eh, I didn't quite And a good editor will always be like, hey, you kind of missed it here, didn't you? And it's like, ah, oh, yes, yes, I did. Um, I felt good about this script. And I sent it, and I was nervous because, you know, I'm, I'm 47 and a novice. You know, when we were working on our way, I was the young, I was the oldest guy in our writer's room with, the le- well, well, with no script. So it was like being the apprentice, which was kind of cool. Um, so I was nervous because I was new at it, but I felt good about it. And he called me up and he goes, Hey, this is good. I was like, thanks. And I, in my head, I was like, it's sort of insulting that you sound so surprised. Uh, and then he goes, you know, what? I knew you could write, but I didn't know you could write. Uh, and, and what he meant was he didn't know I could make the leap to screenwriting. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's the same, I don't know if it's the same sport, but you're using different muscles or it's the same muscles and you're playing a different sport. It's, it's, it's like adjacent. It's like if you went from playing uh, football to playing rugby, it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's, there's, it's related, but it's, so to answer your question, it is, it's different, but it's still storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's still yeah. characters doing things interest. It's interesting people doing something moving or entertaining. It's what we do. And it's especially true of sports. Every game is like, every game story is like a mini episode of television. It's like, a, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's finding out what matters, conveying that in an emotional and interesting way and hoping that people leave and go, oh, I'm glad I read slash watched that. And that's, it doesn't have to be more complicated. Than that. What's hard about it, the hardest thing for me with screenwriting is you can't tell what people are thinking, which we subconsciously in prose, you do all the time. You write about how someone's motivation or why they, something matters to someone or what. Well, in TV or movies, the worst thing you can possibly do is have someone explain why they care about something. Right. And, you know, and in a story, we can do that. But in, mm-hmm. so that's the hard, the hardest thing is not having thoughts and not showing and not showing thoughts in a terrible way like showing them in a natural, like why someone is feeling the way they're feeling in a natural and effective way. That, that's a trick. Just doing it through dialogue and like, there's been so many times I've been writing a script where I've gone, the actor does something really good here that conveys with their eyes what I want them to, you know, it's like, but you can't write in a script like actor does acting, actor acts. <laughs> uh, so that's the, hard, that's the hard part about screenwriting. But otherwise it's just, it's, it's storytelling. Just a different version. We're winding down here with Chris Jones. Really appreciate you taking this much time. I've already kept you far longer than no, I told dude, you. No, dude, can we please keep talking? I, I, I don't want to. I this is what I have today. No, I know you want to go, and I'm not. Grant, I need this. <laughs> you might be the only human I, I talk to. Oh, shoot, my, um, my girlfriend's back in Romania. It's like, oh god. <laughs> This is this is the girlfriend you swear is a real one on your Twitter as I as I've noticed. She's very real. She's very real. She's extremely real. Oh, like, the joke is like every every American goes, oh, she's in Canada. Uh, and I'm like, but I'm in Canada, so she's got to you know, like, It makes sense that she's here. Um, I do want to ask about another thing you've talked about on your Twitter. Uh, I've seen you're in sort of public weight loss mode 
on on your Twitter right now. How's it going? Uh, you're such a jerk because you're like, <laughs> if people don't know, you're like six foot nine and you have like a 28 inch waist. Uh, all your clothes fit in a very small bag when you travel. I'm like, I'm, we are, I don't know body types, but we're not the same. You <laughs> That's a fair uh, assessment. I, I, I would have had a, I would have had a very successful goalkeeping career if I had my sheer stupidity for diving at people's feet with your physical <laughs> attributes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm built like a fire hydrant, and the crossbar is very far away. Um, <laughs> yes, I, during the pandemic, hopefully. I'm not alone in this. Uh, I have I've perhaps eaten more than I should have and moved less than I should have. And I reached a point, um, you know, I had I'd done a big weight loss thing maybe five or six years ago. I got down to 177. I stepped on the scale. I was 227, which is a nice round 50. And I was like, oh, dear Lord, I have to not be like this. Um, and I, the last time I did it, I found it extremely motivating to post my weight on Twitter because- yeah. You gotta lose it then. It's like, and and so uh, it's very self-indulgent. I apologize a thousand times for doing it, but it, I'm gonna get something out of Twitter, damn it. It's not just, I'm not someone's <laughs> dancing monkey. I'm gonna get something out of it. And I I, um, I can't even tell you how many times I've gone, I've gone to go buy some chips and I've gone, oh, gotta post my number. Um, so I'm early days, I'm two weeks and a bit in, I'm down today I weighed 221, so I'm down six. Um, nice. Slow. It's slow, but I'll get there. It's it's just I gotta I gotta be like one eighty. Good luck, man. I mean, like I've got a couple of friends who are doing it, including uh, Aleko Eskandarian, uh, hero of the two thousand four MLS Cup final for DC United, who oh, wow. uh, just got back from Vegas and posted something similar. <laughs> Did he? Uh, he's he's let himself. He's got. I, he's I not think in he said. Shape. I think he said uh, he was as high as he'd ever been. So he was challenging himself on his social media. And look, man, it's it's a pandemic. It's crazy times. And I, I have a lot of respect for folks who are doing that publicly. It's just, it's, for me, it's just, it's just I'm a shame-based creature. I wish I wasn't, <laughs> but a lot of my motivation is fear and shame. And, um, and it's just, it's effective for me. I know for some people it would be an absolute nightmare. And I'm sure there are followers of mine who are like, I don't need to know how much this dude weighs. Like, that's not part of what, that's not part of our civil contract here. Like, I don't, I do it once a week. I weigh in every Tuesday. It's just, it's helpful for me. I just, I don't want to be, so what, you know, making this full circle, because, you know, I'm a writer still at heart and I like to, you know, I like to, I like things to, I like endings to make sense. Um, one of my few remaining life goals, because I'm not that ambitious, is to play a real game of footy with my son and in my old man league which is an over 35 league so at 47 i think right now i'm the second oldest guy in that league because we have an over 50 which i'm looking forward to but in the over 35 mm -hmm. your children can play as long as their dad is playing the age limit does not apply to the children of players um but they have to be 18 sammy's 13 okay. Okay. So I got to hang on five more years. So I'd be 52. Luckily I'm goalkeeping. So, you know, less movement. Um, but that is one of my, in fact, if someone said, what are your, that is probably number one uh, for me. And so the weight loss is also, you know, my joints and everything like that. Like I just need to, I can't be this heavy and still have this dream of playing with my boys. So that is my other motivation is, is uh, 
five years from now, I can be on a field with Sammy and play a real game. If you just, if I hope that happens, I'm excited for it to happen. And if you decide to write about it, maybe you won't, it'll be fun to read. Um, because oh, I, I, know, I know how meaningful that'll be. I will cry like a baby. It will be, it, uh, I'll probably have the worst game of my life. Uh, just cause I won't be able to see properly, but it, uh, it, it's just something, it's such a huge part of our life as, as father and son. And just to be able to kick a ball to him and have him then move. Sammy's a very good player. Uh, he's much better than me already. And he, uh, just to be able to play with him will be, um, yeah. That'll be a life well lived. Chris Jones is a two-time National Magazine Award winner for feature writing. He has written extensively for Esquire and ESPN, among other places. His Esquire story away was the basis for the Netflix series of the same name starring Hilary Swank. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Grant, thank you so much for having me. It is uh, so delightful to talk to you. I hope I see you in a stadium soon. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Chris Jones, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.